Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me first this morning is Tish, Tish Squillaro. She's CEO of Candor Consulting. Head Trash, Cleaning Out the Junk Standing Between You and Success is her new book. Well, did you ever think about what leads you to making bad decisions or no decisions at all? I certainly have. Uh, of course, if you don't make a decision or you make a bad decision, this is self-destructive because you are sabotaging your success in the workplace and also at home. Um, so Tish says it's all about that head trash. Welcome to the show, Tish. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you. Okay, let's get right into it now because uh, head trash, you say that head trash are emotions that get in the way of our successes. And let's face it, as Americans, we all want to be successful, but we find ourselves, what, not being able to do it because we have all this junk in our head that prevents us from being successful? Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's subtle, though. That's what's interesting. It's subtle emotions that we feel every day and ones that we live with, and they're healthy when they're not managing us. But as soon as they start to take over and they cause that clutter or that noise where you get stuck and you don't make that decision or you're afraid to do certain things or you think people are talking about you badly, well, all of a sudden those emotions start to control how you, how you respond, how you react. That's where it crosses the line. And now an everyday healthy emotion can become one that becomes very destructive. All right, Tish, give us an example of that, an example of everything you said, when all these emotions, which can be healthy, but they turn kind of sour and they get in the way of us accomplishing what we want to do. Examples. Sure. So there are seven. It's control, insecurity, arrogance, paranoia, anger, fear, and guilt. And I'll give you one for fear, because in business, I see fear a lot. Fear can be where you have a decision you have to make by having a difficult conversation with someone and you avoid it. You avoid it because you're afraid that that person may react badly, they may quit, but you know it's the right thing to do to have that discussion because they are causing dysfunction and chaos at your company and you continue to do nothing. And to add to that, the staff around you wants to have that conversation because you need to because it's going to change the way things are happening at the organization and you still don't. And when you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize what's holding you back, it's not that you can't have that conversation or you don't believe you should have it, but you're afraid. And that fear now has put you in a paralyzed moment where you do nothing and you avoid it. That's a form of taking fear where it's okay to be afraid. They may quit. They may not be happy, but you still move forward. So what's a way to handle that is we look at looking at a way to replace that sort of unhealthy behavior, and we say, well, maybe you proceed with caution. You can start to give that person feedback about the behavior you don't like, so then you can lead up to the conversation. Because what we try to do is show people that it, if you have head trash, is probably holding you stagnant and not progressing. And what we want people to do is progress, move forward. All right, so you do it, in, you say you do it in segments. You do it, so you do it cautiously and carefully and to get over that fear. Okay, give us a very specific example in a workplace situation where the boss is afraid to approach something with her employee. Sure. Uh, we had a client, and the book actually gives real-life situations with some confidentiality, obviously for protection, who had a very difficult, very demanding, and very challenging leader in charge of one of their functionaries. And it really was causing strong employees to leave. 
it was causing panic within the organization every time there was a meeting because this person would come in with a very severe approach to how they would do things, which would really upset the whole situation. But the CEO was afraid to have that discussion because that person was quiet to big accounts. They had a big revenue nut, and they've always hit it. They performed. But internally, they were not very good. They weren't a good manager. They weren't a good role model. And the CEO struggled with having that difficult conversation because that person would also leverage that and say, well, I could always get a job elsewhere. What was the CEO to do? It's a fair point. You're running a business. You have to make sure you keep your revenue up. You want to make sure your clients are happy. There are things you need to do. Well, how do you approach it? So one approach we gave them, which they did use, was to really start to have a conversation and ask questions to that person as to how things were happening. For example, do you notice in meetings that folks on your team don't really speak up? Do you find that people are engaged in your meetings? And through a series of asking that person questions, the person who had that tough exterior, that that demanding and assertive style, they started to answer the questions. And with that, started to develop a conversation around what their behavior was doing and how it was causing. And that person didn't realize the impact they were having. They thought they were doing their job. They thought they were being firm. They thought they had their team in ship shop shape. They thought people were leaving because they just weren't happy with their numbers, but not that they weren't happy with him. So, Patricia, it's almost like, what it is, is it sounds like, you know, as a social worker, it's approaching this person or this employee in a kind of a social worker, psychologist kind of a way, like having them to examine their own behavior in a non-threatening way and then be able to to, uh, use that behavior in a positive way with their fellow employees. Is that right? Well, it is right for the person who is hearing because self-awareness is step one. You really have to be more self-aware, and without that, it's going to be difficult to have any sort of dialogue about change. But for the person who had the fear head trash, they were able to take some baby steps to actually get over the hump of actually not even addressing the conversation. So we had two things happening in that situation. We were able to take someone who had an exterior, probably a head trash of either arrogance or perhaps control, to a person who had fear as a head church, not wanting to have that discussion, you know, one venue that I believe works in many cases is questions. Ask questions and not attack, and then you start a dialogue. Well, dialogue and communicating is really how you get people to start to listen to each other, not when you're demanding or, or attacking. That really shuts all the ears off. How do you get the dialogue going? And once you do, either the person is going to reciprocate and communicate back with you and you can work at it, or they're not. And if they're not, at that moment, you've got to make the decision, okay, what's the next step? In that case, would have been to say, well, we can't have this behavior anymore. And, I can see I that. Think the per- yeah, effective and really works. Uh, that's, a, that's a great example. And I'm thinking as you're talking, you can kind of extrapolate that. You could have that in a school setting as well when a principal has to talk to parents uh, or even to, to, even to kids. Uh, I mean, you can do it at home. You can use it in a family, that whole situation, that kind of a dynamic. Okay, let's go on to one, to one of the next ones, head trash that gets in the way. Um, well, we have uh, insecurity. Insecurity, okay. How does that work? Uh, well, insecurity is when you have these thoughts and these negative uh, thoughts about your abilities, yourself, your self-confidence. You really don't feel good about you. And you don't realize that you're talking to yourself like that, but a perfect example is someone who has trouble taking feedback. Like if someone says, hey, that meeting went really well, but, you know, maybe next time you might want to do the following. That person gets very defensive and gets very angry. 
right? Because they feel that you're knocking them and their insecurities are arisen that you're saying they're not really good. That's not what the person said. They were actually just giving you some feedback of things to actually be better. Or people who have trouble taking a compliment. They already start to make excuses. So if you walk up to someone and say, hey, that looks really nice. And say, yeah, but you know, I was wondering, does it make me look short? So all of a sudden, people have trouble with accepting feedback because in their mind, they are really very much not, not happy with themselves or they're not very secure about who they are. Or in the book, we refer to the imposter syndrome where you believe at any moment someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, you really don't belong here. You know that. You're not really the right person for this role. So when you have these thoughts about yourself, as you conduct yourself as a family member, a business person, a friend, you start to then use methods to hide who you are because you're so worried. And, you know, I have a perfect example. We had a young lady who was an excellent manager. Uh, Her team loved working with her, but she didn't see that. She felt she was never good enough, didn't communicate enough really wasn't able to give good direction, and she decided to quit her job before being found out. And in counseling with her, we try to help her see, well, no, do you really think quitting is the right step? If you think you're not performing, wouldn't they give you feedback and not perform? No, I know. I'm not doing it well. I, they can have better. And it wasn't until after she left and everybody was so open to really give her how much she's done for them and what great guidance and what a mentor she was that she realized the only person who didn't think she was capable was she. And so insecurity is, 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 is that, again, it becomes, we're all allowed to not think that we're best at everything. I mean, that's okay. You could be a little insecure. First time you're going to do something, you might be questioning. But if you don't make that voice take over, great, you've passed it. But as soon as it starts to really impact you, well, all of a sudden now you're not going to behave the same way with the same confidence because you don't have any self-confidence. Okay, so you have to really look, take a look at yourself and, and understand whether, or realize, I guess, or have some realization is the insecurity, it's a matter of degree, you're saying. We have, all of us have these seven things that may, head trash that may get in the way of us being successful. Uh, but still we have to always, I guess, be on guard or be aware. You mentioned the word awareness, that perhaps our fear, our insecurity is not in the normal range uh, and that it is kind of, that it's a matter of degree and that it's impacting our ability to, to go on to next, to be successful in our jobs or our work situation. Correct. These seven are very subtle because they are things we need to live with. You want to have some fear. You want to have controls around you. You want to be able to get angry if you're upset. But how now, do you talk about anger? Where... Because that's one of the seven. Let's talk about anger. Sure. Yeah. So anger is interesting because people automatically think anger is someone who verbally is screaming at you and yelling at you and telling you how much they're disappointed in you. And that's a very extreme form, but that certainly is an example of anger being disappointed and unhappy with someone, but how you approach it with an anger head trash is really the yelling and screaming. But there's two other ways that are more subtle that people don't realize it's a form of anger head trash. One is body language. And you could sit across the table from someone and say absolutely nothing but show how upset you are, which could make that other person just as uncomfortable if you're screaming at them. Or you can actually let something bother you. You get angry, but you let it simmer and fester. And you don't talk about it, you don't raise it, but you wait for the pouncing moment when you're going to use it later. So now you've made head trash make you angry, but inside angry enough that you then react when you can, which is if it's simmering, you wait until the right moment. And you may not say it then, 
But then when something happens with that same individual, which has nothing to do while you're angry with them and really has no relation, you pounce on them, it's because you've let it simmer. So anger is one of those that you don't even realize that's what's driving you to do that, not give the person that promotion, not congratulate that person that wonderful win, because inside you've made your anger about something else fester and simmer that you've attacked, and you just waited to when you attacked. And in any case, giving someone feedback or having a conversation about something that's disappointed you should never be done with anger as a head trash. It's not productive nor effective. So in a work situation, if something's bothering you about that person, your employee, or what if it's your employer, um, you need to address it immediately and not let it sit and simmer so the anger doesn't build up and then you react inappropriately. Like you're you're upset about something or you're angry about something that a coworker that a that an employee did. Address it right away is what you're saying. Well address it right away with a caveat. Don't react. Don't be impulsive. Many times you actually may need to sit back and think. Another form of controlling your anger, even from the verbal or the body languages Think and pause a minute because when we're really upset, probably not the right time to open your mouth or show an action because we need to think it through. So I'm not suggesting that you pause too long, but enough to have your emotions decrease and not let the anger take over you. Maybe walk around the block. Maybe don't write that email. Don't hit send. Think about it because once our emotions are simmered down slightly, you can have a better view objectively of how you want to respond to what you want to say. With the simmering, I'm saying where you let it go on for days, weeks, you don't even relate it to what you were really angry about because you never addressed it, but you kept it inside until it piled up. That's that subtle difference. I just don't want to confuse folks that I'm saying pounce immediately or hold it too long. I'm saying don't don't react and respond impulsively, pause, but also don't simmer and fester and never raise it because when you do that, eventually you're going to use it for the wrong thing at the wrong time, and the recipient won't even know what happened to them. We mentioned three of the uh, head trash things that get in the way of us becoming successful, but one of the questions you say, what are successful people do it differently from the rest of this? How do they get to that point? How do they learn to take fear and anger uh, and insecurity and use it in an appropriate way. I mean, that's what you talk about in the book. Just get, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. How, where do they get this from? How do they do it and we don't? Well, um, the truth is we all have head trash. So there isn't any one person whose emotions don't get the better of them. And that's one of the things that we try to portray in the book is that it's a very humbling moment to say, it's okay. Our emotions at times are going to take over. But what someone who is able to manage them better is able to do than someone who hasn't even recognized they have them is a better self-awareness. So it's the trigger moments of knowing, wait a second, what's happening here? And am I part of it? Because I've had many clients say, they need help. My team is not good. And I always look immediately at the person and say, so what role do you play in that? Because so self-awareness is key. And then willingness to do something about it. Yeah. You Those can are the two things, very- self-awareness yeah. and willingness to do something about it. Uh, we have to say goodbye. I know it's cutting it short, but uh, it, maybe it will just whet people's appetite so that they can uh, get your book, he- um, Head Trash, Cleaning Out the Junk, Standing Between You and Success. Um, Tish Squillaro, CEO of Candor Consulting. Great to have you on the show this morning. I learned a lot. Thank you. Hey, headtrash911.com is another way to look at Head Trash and learn more about it. Terrific. Great. Thanks so much. We're going to go right into our next guest now. 
um, which uh, is Larry Wingate, and Larry's been on the show before. Larry's uh, a New York Times best-selling author, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, leading business speaker, and his new book is Grow a Pair: How to Stop Being a Victim and Take Your Life Back. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Larry. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Okay. So, well, today the show, I think the theme is like success. How do we become successful? And you're saying that we're kind of, I guess, wimpy. We, we live in this entitlement culture, and when we don't get what we want, we just uh, are kind of wimpy about it, and we don't do something about it and take responsibility. Is that the theme? That's sort of the theme, yeah. It's about we've, had a, we've created society that's an entitled society, and we certainly play the victim. We want to blame somebody else for the fact that we're not doing as well as we should be doing or feel we should be doing. And so we want to blame the government or the Obama administration or our boss or the fact that we're the middle child or whatever. I think it's time that we grow a pair and get our attitude right and learn to stand up for ourselves, what we believe, become un- uncompromising in those beliefs, and go out and make our life happen by taking control. All right, so if we're going to grow a pair, all right, let's, we have to be real specific. How are we going to grow a pair? How do we, how do we uh, here, I'm going to give, you gave this example in the book, and, and it just happened to me, so that's why I want to ask you this question. Okay, this is uh, how not to accept bad service and speak up. How do you do that? Because I think I get bad service all the time, and half, most of the time I don't speak up. Well, if you don't speak up, then you're doomed to always have bad service. Uh, I make it real clear that I'm unwilling to accept bad service. When it starts in the restaurant, I go, excuse me, I'm paying a lot of money for this. I really do expect more from you. And it's amazing how just a line like that, it, you don't have to say it like you're a jerk. And by the way, growing a pair is not about being rude, obnoxious, arrogant, mean, any of those things. It's just about speaking up for your rights and what you have the right to do in a very nice way. That's growing a pair. But I refuse to accept bad service. And here's the other thing. If you get bad service and you take it, you don't fix it for the next guy. In fact, you've become partners in crime with the people who deliver the best bad service an accessory to the crime, in fact. And so I believe that we are obligated to speak up when we see injustice or wrong in any way in order not to just fix it for ourselves, but to fix it for the next guy. Think how we would live in a different world if every single person said today, just today, for the next 24 hours, that we're not going to tolerate bad service, we're not going to tolerate poor performance, we're not going to accept it from ourselves or from anybody else. When we see somebody doing something stupid or wrong, we're going to speak up and hold them accountable for that. Our world would be different tomorrow if we did that today. But, Larry, don't we have to do it in a certain way? I mean, if you start out, you speak up. I was in this Japanese restaurant in New York City, and they were really nasty and very expensive, and I was getting angrier and angrier, and I didn't speak up, and it was too late by the time I spoke up, uh, and I still had to pay the bill, obviously. So how could I have – I was kind of afraid that I would do it. I would antagonize them, and then they wouldn't want to wait on me at, at all, which, of course, they didn't anyway. So, But how do you do it in a way that, that's, that is uh, going to work for you and, and not, have, be, you know, not be angry and negative? Well, first of all, you don't do it emotionally at all. You need to keep your emotions out of it. You need to keep it about the facts. That's just the rules for having any good argument, whether it be with your kids or your spouse or in a business situation. Keep it about the facts always. If you approach it in a restaurant by saying, here are the facts, this, 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 and this, you've kept emotion out of it. Uh, but I'm not as concerned about how somebody's going to react to what I say as I am about getting it said. Uh, their reaction is their responsibility. Their reaction is not my responsibility. I'm not responsible 
responsible for others. I'm responsible to others to give them the very best of who I am. That's it. I have no control how somebody's going to react to this. I say things all the time, and people say, well, you're just mean. Really? Why have we decided that the truth is mean? And if you grow up here, you're going to be called mean. You better be prepared for that. But the truth isn't mean. The truth also is not nice. The truth is just the truth. A fact is a fact. You can't argue with a fact. So if you approach it from a fact standpoint, you're always going to be much better off and more powerful in your argument. So keep the emotion out of it. I like that one. Here's something that's really important. Obviously, it's in the news all the time, and it's, it's a real issue. How to deal with bullies and teach your children to stand up for themselves at school. How do you do that? Well, here's the problem. I think our, our country is so stupid in the way we approach this. I really do. And I get so frustrated with all this crap that I see on TV every day about bullies. And we're going to make it, uh, we're trying to legislate bullies. You can't legislate bullies. Bullies are a part of society. They always have been a part of society. Uh, you run into bullies the minute you get in your car and pull out on the street. There's going to be a bully. Every business has bullies. You cannot legislate against bullies. They're going to be there. So what you do is stop being a victim. You know, if, it, it, you can't have a bully unless you have a victim. And when you become unwilling to be the victim to a bully, that bully has to move on to someone else because bullies need a victim. I think the the important thing for parents to do is to teach their children not to play the victim. To remind their kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So what somebody says about you online, big deal. They're words. And they're words set on some magical Internet stuff. They won't have the guts to say that to your face. And why do we get so so needy to have the approval of others that we're going to let negative things said about us online hurt our feelings to the point of being suicidal even? And so I think a parent's job is to teach their kids not to play the victim. When do you start doing that? This is such an important topic, and I do agree with you. I mean, we're kind of working at the wrong end, legislating bullies rather than and, uh, you know, teaching our children well, whatever that song was in the 60s. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's what we have to do. But we have to start when they're very young. I think you don't, you don't wait till it happens, till they're in middle school and they're being bullied on the Internet. You have to really start when they're very, very young to, uh, you know, the, the to turn that, that whole cycle around. You're absolutely right. Listen, if you're being bullied when you're 15, I can't imagine what your life's going to look like when you're 35. Because you're going to be a disaster. You're Probably if you're a girl who's being bullied at 15, you're willing to take it. That's what you're saying. I'm willing to accept your bullying of me. And then you're going to end up in abusive relationships or a string of abusive relationships because you are teaching other people how it's okay for them to treat you. You've got to break that cycle. And you do that at a very, very young age. I have a two-year-old grandson that he had to learn. You know, I have my space. It's not okay to touch me. It's not okay to push me down. To stand up for themselves. And you have to teach that at a very young age when they're infants about bullying and how to handle themselves so they're not victim. And what's interesting, I can show you, and I, you have examples, everybody thinks of the 85-year-old grandmother who weighs 85 pounds and she's not a victim to anybody. I can show you little kids with severe physical handicaps who are in wheelchairs and they're not victims. It's because they've got their mind right. We have to teach that to our children. Yeah, that is so well said. We're going to end on that one. Too bad we don't have more time. But I have a 90-year-old mother who absolutely fits that description of the 85-year-old that you're talking yep, about. Exactly. Yeah, No one bullies her, I can tell you that. You're absolutely right. 
Great talking to you today. Uh, Larry I appreciate Wingate. you having me on. Yeah, it's great. Grow a pair. How to stop being a victim and take back your life, your business, and your sanity. We're going to take a short break right now. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Come, when we come back, uh, we uh, will be talking to Chris Bean, author of To the End of June, The Intimate Life of American Foster Care. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me in this half hour is Chris Bean. Chris is the author of To the End of June, The Intimate Life of American Foster Care. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, you are a, well, you, I guess this is an intimate story. It's your story in some ways uh, about American foster care, as well as in researching this book, you spent five years tracing the lives of six foster families and 22 foster children most of whom, I guess, were in New York. Right. So uh, th- these are quite some stories, as well as your own story. Uh, and was your own story the motivation or the impetus to, to become involved in, in uh, uh, researching foster care in, in New York? 
Yeah, you know, when I when I took in my daughter, I mean, she was a surprise. She was sort of a surprise pregnancy, really. Um, she she I had been a high school teacher in Los Angeles, um, and she was a kid in trouble, and they ran out of space. This is happening in L.A. currently, but this had happened back in 1997. They didn't have a bed for her, and they wanted to put her into juvenile hall, even though she hadn't committed any crime. And at the time, I was really shocked that they would put a, a child that was in foster care, and foster care is designed ostensibly to protect these kids, um, that they would put her into uh, juvenile hall. Um, and so I said, wait a minute, I'll, I'll, you know, you stay with me. That's ridiculous. They can't just put you in jail for, for, for no reason. Um, and then they said, well, do you want to be her guardian? And I said, whoa. And I, I said yes, temporarily, and it ended up lasting for years. Um, and so that's how she became my daughter. And I, from there, I became really interested in how we could be spending $22 billion a year um, on this system that really nobody thinks is working very well. So why are we doing that? Because always, you know, and you, you hear about foster care, but it kind of is under the radar. You don't right. hear about it a lot. I mean, I'm a social worker. I do hear about it. But right. I think the general public doesn't hear about foster care. Is it because it's too painful to hear about these children who are really not getting the care that they need and the fact that we're spending $20 billion a year on something that doesn't work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure why we don't hear about it, because as a reporter, I'm really interested in it, and I think it's a fascinating and dynamic and vital system, and it's really changing. I mean, it's interesting. The reports that we do get usually are when, when a child dies, um, and it's usually a little girl. When a little girl dies at the hands of her caregiver, um, we... And they blame it on a social worker, usually. Right, usually. Yeah. Um, and that's been an interesting case here in New York, actually. Um, they When uh, Marcella Pierce died a couple of years ago... Um, and it was a horrific case and very, very tragic. Um, and everybody flipped out and said, oh, wait a minute, these caseworkers, where were they? And they're now being tried uh, for, for manslaughter, um, which is frightening um, because it's the first time in the, in the history of, of child welfare that, uh, that, that caseworkers can be, are being tried. Um, Do you think so, that's part of blaming the victim? I mean, you're starting with, you know, right. you don't want to address those people who are the administrators, the, pe- the politicians, the people who are also involved in this. So, right, yeah. right. And, and, and the fact of the matter is um, every year 5,000 kids die at the hands of their parents or caregivers. So um, when one child rises to the top, and, and gets, gets the attention of the news media, that's when everybody panics and goes, oh my gosh, wait a minute, what's wrong with the system? We need to look at the system. And then we crack down and a lot more kids come into care and out of, out of fear that, um, that, that some kids are going to die, um, they pull in probably more kids than they should. And the, the truth is it's very, very, very traumatic to remove a child from his or her home, as, as, as you know, in this field. Um, and, and so... Um, uh, I, I think I think the reason people don't want to talk about it is they think I think that they're afraid that um, it's a system that's so broken it can't be fixed. Um, they feel like it's a fait accompli. They feel like it's about child abuse, um, and, and it is to some extent about child abuse. But really, it's um, a, a system that's changing all the time. It's a very vital, changeable, dynamic system, um, and at so the heart of it, it's not really just- these. It's not yeah. these kids that are dying, really. It's these kids that are stuck in a system year after year after year that um, that are re- that, that, that sort of get their souls sucked out of them. And then that's really what we need to be talking about, not the well, kids. Well, let's talk about Chris, because you trace the lives of these six foster families yeah. and, the ch- and the children. Maybe get, let's talk specifically about like one of the or one or two 
of those cases, of those sure. families, like sure. how they operated within this system that, you, that isn't working but you say is changing. So let's talk about what it is and how it's changing and where it's going. Well, what I, you know, what's interesting is that um, foster care, you know, as we know it, has really only been around since the 70s. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, fairly new, it's a fairly new system because child abuse was, quote-unquote, discovered in, in 1962, um, and that's when the state really got involved um, as child abuse was discovered because uh, x-rays, through x-ray technology, a man named Harry Kempe came along and said, oh, we, we've, we're seeing that, that kids have bones are being broken in multiple places, and this is probably happening in the home, and, um, and he coined a term called um, battered child syndrome, and with television, it, the news went wild on this, and the state suddenly said, we've got we've to um, get a hold, we've got to get control over this, and they then set up foster care as we know it. So um, the states got, started, started um, started working with all of the, the local um, religious organizations that were already in place um, that were doing orphanages and so forth and set up foster care. Um, and um, since then, it's sort of the, the, the legislation has swung back and forth um, in favor of the keeping families together and then to the other extreme, um, removing children in favor of safety. And so we've sort of gone back and forth. And, and when, when I started um, this book six years ago, or so, um, a lot of the kids I was working with um, had been taken from their homes at a point in, in, in history where a lot of kids were being removed. Um, and uh, so, um, and, and also another thing to consider is that in 1997, Clinton passed a law called the Adoption and Safe Families Act that said, basically, um, we can't keep kids in foster care for so long. You know, we've got all these kids drifting. Um, we've got all these kids where we've removed them from their parents, and yet their parents haven't quite gotten better enough to bring them back. So we've got to do something about this. We've got to either bring them back home or we've got to get them adopted out. So if a kid's been in care for 15 out of 22 months, they've got to, they've got to either go home or be adopted. And so what that did is it brought the foster care numbers down um, significantly. And so now we've got the lowest foster care numbers that we've ever had, which is a good thing, but it's also changed the foster care numbers. Um, it's, what, what we have now is that the babies have all, not all, but a lot of the babies and young children have been adopted, but the older kids, the, the, the teenagers, um, are not getting adopted. They're not finding families. So they're the ones really loitering in care. They're the ones that are stuck. And so that's where we are right now, and that's what I mean when I say that foster care is really changing. So when I was looking at these families, one of the families that I talked about was, um, that I followed for these years, was a family called, by the name of the Greens. They live in, um, they live in Bedford's Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, um, a pretty tough part of Brooklyn here in New York. Um, and they, they, came, they came into foster care. They're a great family. Um, and, and, and what I was looking at was families that, are really, that really want to do the right thing. I was not looking at families that are locking their kids in closets, that are not feeding their kids and so on. I was looking at foster families that really wanted to do the right thing, that wanted to treat their kids well, that were looking to adopt and so forth, so I could better see the cracks in the system. So the Greens came along and said, you know what, we want babies. We want, we want to raise the kids from, you know, early on and then adopt them. And what they got was a house full of teenagers because the teenagers are the ones that had needs. Um, and the teenagers are, are, are who are really filling the rosters. Um, and so I was able to track what happened to these teenagers. Um, and it was a pretty interesting story. Uh, 
And, and you're talking about families uh, with good intentions, as you're saying. I yeah. mean, they, you know, they, they wanted to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Are there families who, it's not that they necessarily have great intentions or that they're, are people who are going to batter their children, but they're kind of benign. They want, you know, there's this kind of, I don't know, is it a myth that they just want the money? They need money, so they take in the kids and they you know, take I care do of think, them? I do think that idea that, fam- that, that foster parents do it for the money is a bit of a myth. Um, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture just came out with its figure that says that it costs $241,000 to raise a kid from birth to 18 years. And um, the foster care payments... Um, range state by state. Everything in foster care ranges state by state and city by city and county by county. But on average, we're paying foster parents about half that. Um, We're paying them about $108,000. So they're not getting the same amount that it costs to raise a child. So they're really not doing it for the money. But I have a sense that that, that that feeling comes up and that feeling is very real because the kids often don't feel, um, uh, don't feel loved. And, and part of it is because there's a lot of mixed messages in, in child welfare. Um, part of it is um, that, that foster parents aren't, in a lot of places, are still trained not to attach to the kids. Um, they're trained, you know, this is a temporary system. These kids are here. I mean, it's designed to be temporary. These kids are coming in for a short period so that they can go back to their parents once their parents get better. But these kids are really traumatized. It's very, very traumatic. I mean, imagine being a child, and you're in a home, and it's the only home you know, and then suddenly one night you're taken, it's always in a van, you're taken in a van and put into a stranger's house. So you're going to panic. You're going to freak out. Now, these parents... Are, some of the foster parents are incredible. Some of them are very loving. But many of them are fairly mediocre, or they're there to just kind of do a job, or they've had so many kids come in and out of their homes that they're kind of burned out. You know, this, there's these sort of mediocre flatlands in child welfare. And the interesting thing that I found when I was doing my research was that there are, there's a ton of data on the kids themselves their demographics, where they come from, what they've been through, and so on. But there's very little research, and most of it is anecdotal, about the foster parents. We really don't know a lot about these people. Um, and, and the requirements for becoming a foster parent in most places are really very, very little. Um, we require off, sometimes a high school diploma, sometimes not. We require that they pass a criminal background check. But beyond that, not much. Um, well, as you're describing it, I'm thinking I'm someone who's raised three children uh, educated social worker, and to be my, if I were put in that situation myself, I'm not sure that I could do it. First of all, by the time you get a teenager, I mean, the, a teenager is, you know, emotionally, intellectually, socially, uh, has been pretty well programmed. And as you say, to take them out in a van in the middle of the night or whatever, right. maybe not in the middle of the night, to somebody's strange home and expect things it's to often, go well. The emergency to, removals are often in the middle of the night. Yeah. And you know what's funny is a lot of times, you know, when the kids are taken, when the kids are removed, and it's, and it's in a crisis situation like that, what happens is an investigator is called to the home. Um, I mean, the process, as you know, is somebody makes a call, um, and in each city and state, it's different. In some states, there's a 24-hour response 
um, requirement where the where the agency must respond within 24 hours. In some places, it's 36. In some places, it's 48 different different time spans. Um, an investigator comes to the home. Now, who the investigator is varies. You know, often it's very young people with with the sort of um, the sense of righteousness of youth. You know, and they don't have a lot of nuance. Um, they come in and they say they decide in that moment whether the home is is too dangerous for the child to stay. Um, and they they interview the kids, they interview the parents, they look around, they decide whether that that place is safe or not. Um, there was a there's a commissioner in um, Florida who who did a, a study on 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 his removals in his state, and what he found was the the rate of removal was based not on the kinds of abuse that was occurring in the homes, but on the level of experience his investigators had. And the ones with the least experience were removing at a far higher rate than the ones with more experience. And in some ways that makes sense because when you have more experience, you're able to discern nuances. You know, you're able to understand that when a parent opens the door and is furious to see a, a child, child investigator standing at your door, you're, that makes sense. You know, they're freaked out. They don't want you to take their kids away. But a younger person is going to say, oh, my God, this parent is angry. This parent is furious. This must be an abusive parent. Let me remove the child. You know, when you see a dirty home, when you see no food in the refrigerator, you might want to remove the kid. Other investigators might say, what is this? Is this a case of poverty or is this a case of neglect? What's really going on here? Yeah, are there other, I mean, there can be many confounding or confounding factors. I mean, the empty refrigerator, somebody may have been sick. Right. I mean, there are lots of different nuances, right. right? There are different things that can occur. So what are some of those levels of, of abuses? What's the first thing, like just the standard, let's say, in New York? Well, you know, there, is, there, there are no real hard and fast rules, and that's the interesting thing. I'm sorry about the the, the siren outside. Um, right now, there's an emergency yeah, is that New York? They're coming to get you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, there are no there are no hard and fast rules. At the bare minimum, uh, when when child abuse was quote unquote discovered in in 1962, um, the feds got involved shortly thereafter. Um, in in the early 70s. The, the federal government set up something called the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, and that's when they provided funding to the states to prevent and treat child abuse. And they said that every state must have a defini- definition of child abuse on the books. And the basic definition is very loose and very vague. Um, it basically says that child abuse is um, is is the act or the failure to act. Um, in a way that causes um, that causes harm, emotional, physical, or sexual harm. Now that is that's it. That's the definition. So what is harm? You know that I mean abuse is is kind of like love. You know it's in the eyes of the beholder. And and seventy five percent of the cases of of child maltreatment in this country are neglect. So. It's really, really, really slippery. Um, you know, certainly, if you see a child, you know, with, inc- with broken bones and, and bruises and all of that, these are the extreme cases. That's abuse. Yes, yes, yes. We can all agree on that. But when a child is coming to school without a coat in the middle of winter, that can be a number of things. It, and that needs to be closely examined. Is that a case of the kid hating his jacket? 
and being embarrassed and not wanting to show up and throwing it in the bushes before he shows up. Oh, you know, that... I have to stop you there, Chris, because that's such a, it's an, it's an interesting example. Cause yeah. My boys now are in their early 30s, and uh, one of my sons who refused to wear a jacket or boots in the middle of the winter. There we go. And I, he would go to school, and he never got sick, and he's a great student, blah, all that stuff, right? And I used to say to him, you know, they're going to call me up. And they're going to say, accuse me of child abuse, but you won't wear it. But he never right. wore it. He never needed it. it. It was always a joke in our family, actually. Right. So when you give right. that example, I, that's a really good example. Right. Of, uh, so we really need yeah. this kind of, and, and in some places, they have the, the teams in place to really, really look. And there are great people in child welfare that, 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 that of course, in the case of the, the jacket, are looking closely and figuring it out and saying, okay, this is a case of a kid that just doesn't want to wear his jacket and his internal barometer runs high and he also, you know, has a keen fashion sense and doesn't want to wear it. We got it. You know, but in other places, you know, they're not doing that kind of that 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 kind of examining. And in other places, families use child welfare as as a as a um as a warring tool against one another. You know, they'll they'll call child welfare to um to try to get t- kids taken away to battle, you know, one another because they don't like their daughter's boyfriend and they want to use it as a way to fight with each other. You know, there's all kinds of dynamics going on. So is there a solution to this? I mean, as you're describing it, it seems overwhelming. And, and I, I think in, in reading um, in, in your book, I mean, you indicate that we'll say we're in New York State, we're kind of in the middle in terms of how well we handle foster right. care. Um, so, but is there, there any way solutions. out or are we doing anything you know, right? And what happens to any of these kids end up in a good situation, yeah, go to college? Some yeah. kids do. There are solutions. You know, I, I don't think there is one, you know, because there are so many problems, um, there are many, many solutions. You know, there's not one quick fix. Um, and if there were, somebody would have thought about it. And there are a lot of really smart people working in child welfare that are doing things to change it. But really, the, the, the main trick here is that every single case is different, and every single child is different, and every single family is different, and deserves to be looked at with the care and attention. I mean, if you imagine your own family and you think about your own family dynamics and what kinds of attention your family has needed through the years, that kind of attention needs to be paid to each one of the families that comes into contact with child welfare. So there is no one quick fix. Um, I do think that the way that child welfare is funded is um, problematic because the way it is funded is that a child needs to be put into care in order to get the funding. It's funded on a per diem basis, um, and I'm speaking in broad sweeps here, but it's funded on a per diem basis, so a child needs to be removed from the home to get the funding. Now, that's a tricky proposition, right, because it's sort of a, um, an, a perverse incentive to remove kids. Um, so there's some, there's sort of, we're seeing a sea change in this. There are some cities and states that have accepted a, a flat sum, a wa- what they call the waiver system. Florida's done this. Some other places have done this, where they're taking a flat fee um, in lieu of this per diem pay structure, where they can put some funding into front end um, into front-end services like child abuse prevention and domestic violence prevention and drug rehab, those kinds of things, so they don't have to remove the kids in order to, um, in order to fund their services. And that's a really interesting change. So there are, there are changes happening. Um, and I think we're starting to realize that um, institutions aren't the answer, you know, slowly in some places. You know, kids don't grow up well in orphanages, and we still have orphanages. We call them group homes now. Um, they don't grow 
grow up well in group homes. They need families. Um, we're starting to see that. Um, so there are some, you know, answers, but there's not one like, you know, take a wrench and fix this one slippery cog and that'll fix it. So the system is complex from the inside and from the outside yep. is what you're saying, I guess, and we have to take a look at all of it. Right. Uh, and, and But uh, getting back to the one thing you just said that different families, healthy families and dysfunctional families have different operating systems. Right. So maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, from the social worker's perspective, but right. the, the, the people who are the... Uh, uh, the social workers and, and their, uh, the people who are associated with them need better training, maybe? I mean, even if they're, I mean... Yeah, they in... need, sometimes they need better training. Sometimes they're very well trained and they need better support, you know? Um, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about in New York, the ones that, the, the, the two that, um, like Sharice Bell, the, the, the supervisor here who's now being, um, who's now on trial for um, manslaughter, um, you know, I'm thinking of all the social workers and case managers here in New York who now are terrified for their jobs, you know. Yeah. Now not only are they, are they in very difficult positions, you know, going into family homes where they're threatened on a daily basis, but now they're afraid that, you know, they make one wrong move or a family does something, uh, you know, outside of their, outside of their sight line, and they, they could go to jail. So I think um, they... So they're they, going to be... They're going to be operating, and this is it sort of it seems to me there's somewhat of an analogy here, you know, like doctors who prescribe uh, tests for patients because it's based on whether or not they're going to be sued by right. the, the patient. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. and that's not based on medical care. And this right. Is the same, yeah. That's not based on, you know, making, making judgments that's best for the family. That's based on judgments that's saving their own behind. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so that's a very dangerous precedent. So I think, you know, social workers, yes, they need, they need perhaps um, training, but they also need a lot of support. And um, a lot of these decisions, I think, are so, you know, require um, a, lot of, a lot of teamwork. Like, for example, in a, in a family where they're, uh, you know, where the issue is really, and often it's really about poverty, where the issue is about poverty, sometimes, you know, they need support. Bring in poverty experts. You know, if, it, if the issue is around, if the issue is around um, drug use, bring in drug use experts. You know, bring more people to the table to talk about these things. No social worker can be trained in all elements of all, of all uh, you know, things that can come into a family. You know, I think it's about bringing, in, bringing more people to the table to each, to each dynamic that can possibly come up. Yeah, everybody needs a support system. We all, uh, including, yeah. the, as you say, including the social workers, the case managers, all of them. Right. Um, w- uh, let's talk about your book because a couple minutes left, but in terms of where we can uh, get information online, you can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Oh, and a and website. You have website. I am an independent bookseller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So... Well, well, let me mention the name again. To the na- to the end of June, the intimate life of American foster care, uh, Chris Beam. But uh, so, give us a website or two that we can go to if we have more questions about. Sure, you can yeah. go to my website, which is chrisbeam.com, and that's C R I S no H C R I S B as in boy E A M as in Mary dot com, and you can find the book at any bookstore, and you can find it online, yeah, at Amazon or IndieBound or Barnes and Noble, wherever. It's wherever books are sold. That's fantastic. It's a great book, and I think it's, uh, I mean, it's a real addition to all of this, well, some of its the, the talk and all the 
sort of getting it out there, I think, yeah. you know, as we kind of going full circle. But, you know, we, we have to start talking about it, and we, right. we, I think this is one way, obviously, to do it. Um, thanks so much being, for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. All right. Uh, take care. Yep. Yeah, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, to the end of June, The Intimate Life of American Foster Care. That's Chris Beam. You can go online at her website. I'm uh, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show today. Have a great week, and we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.